My task is triply uh, challenging. One, I have to follow Dr. Mike Smith, who killed it last week. Um, as our president said, I have this whole entire book, and then I was given the, the theme of presence, and I'm trying to make it work. With the Lord's help, I think we shall do that. Um, I'm going to park, my park out in Exodus chapter one, but there'll be many scriptures that I will uh, take a look at. Let me read Exodus chapter one, verses one through seven. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They, they came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of other verses we'll look at, but I want, to, I want us to think about the concept of a redeemed people developing a theology of presence. I'd argue in order for us to understand the book of Exodus, particularly the, its theology of divine presence, there are at least two data points that we must access. First is the ancient Near Eastern context. I think we must explore this idea what it means, what does it mean to be a people in an A&E context that wrestles with divine presence and perhaps in a related way, divine absence as a conquered people? If you are a conquered people, what does it look like to wrestle with divine presence and potentially divine absence in that context? Humanly speaking, for one nation to conquer in an ancient context, another means that that nation's God has conquered the other nation's God. This, I'd argue, aptly explains uh, scripture like Exodus 12 and 12, where, is that it? Yep. Exodus 12 and 12, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against, here it is, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. That, that's, that's kind of an enigmatic passage. It's kind of weird. We, we might find it weird for a text to say that God is bringing judgment against gods of Egypt since as far as good theology is concerned, the gods of Egypt don't even exist. But the author is engaging this A&E context of the original readers. That The book of Exodus is purposely interacting with this A&E theology of divine absence, offering an apologetic against idol gods. In any context for Israel to be subjected to oppression of another people, their God, Yahweh, for all intents and purposes, is considered to be an absentee God. Exodus 12 and 12 enters into that conversation by saying, not only is God not conquered, not only is he not absent, 
but he is present in a very real way. In fact, he's so present that he's about to bring judgment against the gods of Egypt. Literally speaking, then judgment day has come against them and they have to give an account to the one true God. This then perhaps is the Old Testament equivalent of Philippians 2, 9, and 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, 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 this is part of the integral story of the preeminence of God's presence, which we will talk about in a minute. Exodus 12 and 12 says, I will bring judgments against the gods of Egypt. Understanding this anti-framework will help us understand the book of Exodus is not only engaging claims against Yahweh as an absentee God, but in turns the claims on its head. Yahweh's not, he's not only not absent, he's present and preeminent. It's in that context that we should understand some of these references about other gods in Egypt. For example, Exodus 18, 11 says, now I know, Jethro says this, that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Exodus 15, 11, Moses in the song, uh, probably written and composed by Miriam, um, says, who is it like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is it like thee majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? Exodus 20, 22 22 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Interacting with that framework, Israel would have to make sure they don't give in to a paganistic perspective about the absence of God. And how many times throughout history has the faith community had to wrestle with that same concept? Perhaps you are in a season where you're wrestling with the same thing Perhaps some of your life circumstances and challenges causes you to wrestle with the tension of the presence of God and perceptions about the absence of God. On one hand, we affirm what scripture affirms. God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present, ever-present help in a time of struggle. Is that not right? That, that's our theology. We affirm that God is always with us. But on the other hand, we sometimes struggle with perceptions about and feelings about the absence of God. Anybody ever felt themselves struggling with the question, God, where are you? God, I, I stepped out here on faith. Yahweh, where are you? I've petitioned you for justice, God. Where are you? My heart is hurting, Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh Rapha, God, where are you? My, the wicked flaunt in their arrogance, God, where are you? Israel has to wrestle with the presence of God on one hand, and within any framework of, as a conquered people, they have to wrestle with perceptions of the absent God on the other. That's the A&E context. But then I said there's two data points. The, the literary, the larger literary context. Second thing we must consider with regard to this presence of God in Exodus is how the theme features within the larger literary context of the entire book. In my estimation, uh, and just for the, for the sake of organizing your thoughts, there are three strands of thought integral to the plot of the story that works together to highlight the theme of God's presence in Exodus. 
On one side of the spectrum, we have God who is the protagonist, the protagonist God who reveals his presence. Everybody say reveals his presence. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the protagonist Pharaoh who on the antagonist Pharaoh who resists and reject God's presence. And somewhere in between targeting is Israel who have to figure out what it looks like to rely on his presence. And, and, and we find that they, they, and there are times when they, they look closer to what God would have them to, to look like and there are other times that they look like Pharaoh. It's in that then framework that I want to try to enter more specifically into conversation. Just real quickly, the resistance of God's presence with Pharaoh, perhaps quintessentially is represented in Exodus 5 and 2. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Huh, I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. When Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I do not know the Lord. This is, uh, this is ignorance, but it's not an innocent ignorance. It, it, it's, it's more of an intentional ignorance. It, it, this intentional ignorance also looks more like, like defiance. See, because ignorance, innocent ignorance will often humbly recognize what it doesn't know and seek to learn, but intentional ignorance doesn't want to know and doesn't feel it needs to know. Pharaoh's resistance teaches us something about humanity, particularly how pride and power can work together for intentional ignorance. See, from Pharaoh's standpoint, he's in charge. He decides what happens to Israel, not Moses and definitely not this unknown God, Yahweh, who's nobody ever heard of. All too often, intentional ignorance is a mark of a power play of the prideful. They don't want to know. As far as they're concerned, they don't have to know. I won't deal with all of it, but remember those dynamics the next time you have conversations about racism and sexism and classism. There's an intentional ignorance and then there's an innocent ignorance. As far as Pharaoh was concerned, he didn't know Yahweh, neither did he need to know. But according to the Mishnah, Pharaoh would spend approximately a whole nother year learning who Yahweh is. You, you didn't want to know? You didn't learn? Today you're going to find out. You're going to learn today. And, and he, in fact, he will learn over the whole next year who Yahweh is. He would understand the preeminent presence of Israel's living God. Go then from The other side of the spectrum, God is revealing himself in Exodus. The revelation of God's presence, the book of Exodus, is structured with the construction of the tabernacles and the rules for the tabernacle as its climax for the covenant community, and particularly how to engage the presence of God. It's all moving toward that. We see God revealing himself to Moses in a burning bush, Moses learns that God cannot be approached trivially. 
The motif of revelation of God's presence continues as he sends Moses and Aaron to Egypt to reveal himself to his people and to reveal himself to Pharaoh, who will have to learn not to treat the presence of Yahweh trivially. After the Exodus, Exodus 13, 21 reveals that God's presence is somewhat reflected by his leading Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But in regards to the covenant community, these passages lead to a very interesting passage. Well, I'll come back to Exodus 19 and 7. Maybe I didn't put it up there. That's okay. Thought I did. Exodus 19 and 7, which is a very interesting passage. Every 19 and 17, I'm sorry. Let me read it for you. Exodus 19, 17 says, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Two things we need to learn from this. Theologically, this concept of meeting God and this theme is picked up in the New Testament eschatologically. It, it, in some ways, then, foreshadows this picture of our great eschatological hope. There's some problems, obviously, the book of Hebrews is going to say, right? And there's some problems with the meeting God. They, 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 they didn't understand the dynamic of his presence. It was terrifying. It was fearing, fearful. Hebrews 12, to 23 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the mirrors of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you've come to God. 1 John 3 and 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it does not appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when we shall appear, we shall be just like him, for we shall see him just as he is. This is picked up in the New Testament as, as an integral part of our eschatological hope. One of these old days, we shall see our Savior. We shall see the one that redeemed us, the one that died for us. We shall see God. Oh, in African-American Christian tradition, we sing a song, when I see Jesus, when I see the one who died for me, when I see the one that gave his life for me, amen. There's something hopeful, something inspiring about our great eschatological hope. It's more than just wistful thinking. It is the climax of our redemption. And for Israel, it was the climax of their redemption. They come to the mountain to finally meet the one who had redeemed him. Exegetically, though, the idea of Israel meeting God is another anthropomorphism. It's so describing uh, the intimate revelation of God in human-like terms. And even that means, though, and from the literary standpoint, that we have to look at how does the plot progress to, to a point where Israel finally meets God. This is where I'm going to park in Exodus 1, that's kind of small up there, but I'll read it. Well, I already read it. Um, Exodus 1, 1 through 7. This is where I want to park because three things I want to highlight real quickly. There's the paradoxical aspect of God's presence. Everybody say paradoxical. There's a particularizing aspect of God's presence. Everybody say particularizing. And then there's a preeminent aspect of God's presence. Preeminence, this priority, the superiority of his presence. 
Here it is. It's important that Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7, opens up mentioning a couple of figures. First figure, it mentions Jacob and his lineage. And then it mentions Joseph. That's not incidental. Jacob and Joseph's story in Egypt becomes a precursor to Israel's story in Egypt. In many ways, it will answer the question, what does it mean for God to be present among Israel? And in many ways, it would answer in similar ways, in ways that he was present for Jacob, in ways that he was present for Joseph, he will be present for Israel. But in the tension between these two figures, um, Jacob and Joseph is this, this, this tension of the paradoxical, paradoxical aspect of God's presence. There's, there's these two aspects that seemingly are, are, are on two sides of the spectrum, but they're fitting together uh, to, to, for the narrative point. Because don't forget how the Israelites end up in Egypt. Joseph goes on before Israel, unfortunately, by the way of suffering. To bring about the economic salvation from a famine. He, he goes from the pit, and we usually say from pit to the palace, but he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house to prison to palace. Yet, what does scripture say about him? Genesis 39, 2 and 3. And the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master. This, this phrase, this concept of God's presence with Joseph will be repeated a couple of times in the Genesis narrative. It will be repeated again in verse 21. The interesting thing in between Genesis 39, 2-3 and 21 is that's what happens. It says, God prospered Joseph and then in the next scene, he's, being, uh, he's been in prison on trumped up rape charges. Joseph goes to jail, and then the Lord, then it says, after he goes to jail, but the Lord was with Joseph. This paradoxical aspect of God's presence is this, it is that God's presence both prospers us and problematizes our lives. It, anybody ever thought to yourself, man, I was doing just fine until I started following to God. Yeah, you'll be honest with that. Anybody ever thought if, if I was lying and cheating and manipulating to taking shortcuts in life, this thing would be a lot easier. I'd be farther along, but it's like when I try to do it the Lord's way, when it's more difficult, it takes a lot longer. My life is fraught with challenges. One of the reasons that could be is that sometimes God's presence doesn't just prosper us, it problematizes our lives. And, and, and the, the narrator pulls those punches. Yes, God was with Joseph, but the same, um, in the same breath, Joseph goes to jail. He has to defend his reputation. The presence of God will prosper him, but it also will problematize his life. Because God knows what he's doing. It's one of those things that Israel must learn about the presence of God. It's why Exodus 1, re re repeating what the reader already knows from the latter chapter of Genesis, is why the, 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 uh, the book opens up with this fact. Joseph is dead. They already know that from the latter part of Genesis. The narrator wants you to connect Joseph's story to Israel's. The implicit question 
of the sophisticated reader would be, will God continue to be with Israel the way he was with them, with Joseph? Because the text sets up this irony, right? The text is, and, and Joseph died. And, and, you're, and you're there to think, oh, man, Joseph died. Okay, here comes the problem, and obviously it will come. The problem will come. But before it says that, it says, but the sons of Israel, verse 7, were fruitful. Joseph died, next verse, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so the land was filled with them. And, and this is keying the, the reader because it, it's a hint to the reader. On, on some level, on a kind of basic level, there's this kind of Ad, Adamic blessing, right? Adam is told to be fruitful and to multiply, which is passed down to Noah and passed down to Abraham. And, and just to complicate things, Ishmael has it too. But it was, it, that, yeah, so there's that element there, but... I think there's a, 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 a quicker, a, a sharper connection that has to deal with Joseph. Because Genesis 41:52 says, Joseph's at towards the end of his life, he says he named the second born Ephraim, and this is what Ephraim's name alludes to. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And, and it's, I think there's a connection there is that, that Israel, um, just like God made Joseph fruitful in the land of affliction, Israel is now being made fruitful, exceedingly fruitful, abundantly fruitful, even in the land of their affliction. So now then it becomes an opportunity to develop a good, robust theology of presence. His theology, his presence prospers us, but it also problematizes our lives. And we are tempted to think to only hold on to the prospering aspect of his presence and overlook the problematizing aspect of his presence. Because sometimes his way of prospering us by the way of suffering is just not what we thought we signed up for. Ah, uh, so, so for some people, when they ask, where is God? Not for all of For some people, it's because they are lifting up the prospering aspect of his presence and negating the problematizing aspect. Joseph goes down to Egypt as a precursor of Israel's story. Joseph's name is the second born is that God made me fruitful in my land of affliction. Israel's God is seen more than just a local deity. He's not just a patron God of a particular people whose jurisdiction is restricted to a particular place. No, his sovereignty and his ability to bless his people knows no geographical or social boundaries. That means that Yahweh is God who can bless his people anywhere. This is important. He is the God that can bless his people anywhere. It doesn't matter. The, 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 there is no boundaries to where and how he can bless his people. You, we need to understand that. Because how, how often, how often um, do we think if I was in a different place, my life would be different? 
Only, only, this is part of what they're struggling with, right? Because as soon as they get out of Egypt, he, he delivers them out of Egypt, but now he has to deliver Egypt out of them, and they're constantly trying to figure out if only we were back in this place. Don't you know that the God that you serve can bless you anywhere? And so you have this dynamic, but don't forget Jacob's story. Don't forget because um, there is this particularizing aspect of God's presence. See, Jacob comes to Egypt because Egypt is better resourced. You know the you know the you know the the passage, right? Uh, Joseph talks about how um, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of abundance. The Lord gives them wisdom through the vision um, to uh, put an economic plan into place where in this abundance, they will save up. Um, and nobody care about it. You tax folks, and nobody, because there's so much, everybody's just giving it. And then when the famine come, they would have what they need. And God would use Joseph and use this economic plan to bring about the salvation of not only Israel, but Egypt. President Maxwell said that, too. It's in that context that Jacob tells us, boys, go to Egypt and buy food. And ultimately, um, ultimately, they will, the, 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 the uh, family is saved from famine because of this. It does complicate and raise a question, though. If God is a God that can bless his people anywhere... Why does he send his people to certain places to experience, to experience blessings? Why does Abraham have, to, Abraham have to go to a land where God will show him? Why does Joseph have to go to Egypt to fulfill his destiny? Why is there such an emphasis on Israel entering, entering into the promised land? Why does Jacob have to go to, to Egypt to be saved from this famine? These things could suggest that God's Certain blessings are merely tied to a certain place. It could suggest that unless we are in those places, we cannot be blessed in certain ways. Here's the book of the here's the book of Exodus answer to that. Yes, theologically and sociologically, sometimes that's true. The key thing is sometimes. Sometimes what God has for us whether it is from a sociological or theological standpoint, is tied to a certain time, a certain space, in the time and space continuum. Certain, sometimes we have to trust God in obedience and we have to pack up um, from Chicago and we have to come to Prairie College. So sometimes, sometimes, like Elijah and others, what God has for you is in that place called there and you need to get there. He, there, there is a particular location, there's a particular time, and, and that's why C.S. Lewis is, is correct. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. Sometimes you need to get to a place where God wants you to be because that is in that place that he will, he will develop you. He will, he will uh, pour into you and he will bless you in a way that he sees fit. And you know what? That's true sociologically too. The truth is that being born in certain places and certain times can give you access to opportunities and resources that others not born in that time and space are not privy to. The Bible does not try to obscure this fact that this truth is integral to Israelite story in Egypt. They're there because Egypt was better resourced. 
God didn't do it miraculously, so to speak. It was just a very practical economic plan that God gave Joseph to institute. Yeah. And we need to, the Bible doesn't try to hide that fact, and we don't need to try to hide that fact. Listen, where I'm from, because of the social and systemic injustices, that means I can have better quality of life in the suburbs than in the inner city. In the global context, it can mean that sometimes certain geographical spaces are privy to certain access to resources and opportunities. They, they have, have better things um, like better education and health care. Um, even in time-wise, right, we, we are having and experiencing a lot of blessings that people that came before us did not. God, the Bible doesn't try to hide that fact. This interpersonally, I think, even has implications, right? Because sometimes you have a stewardship of space that you have access to as a, as a man, that you may have access into spaces that, that sometimes women don't do. You have access to tables, um, um, sometimes depending on your ethnicity and your social location. Sometimes they're, they're not something for us to necessarily to feel guilty about per se, um, unless they've come from sinful, sinful uh, things, but, um, and we've contributed in some way. But listen, it's a stewardship. It's a stewardship. We have access to those things. And, and, and part of the, the wisdom, the practical wisdom, is that God uses Joseph to, to mine these resources, not just for Israel, but for Egypt and surrounding nations. It's in that, that I, as I work my way to my close, that in struggling with this particularizing aspect of God's presence, that sometimes God is doing special things in special places. This is also the theology of the tabernacle, is that, that, that in God's special revelation of his presence, that there are certain blessings that come with that. There are certain access to God that come with that. This will be, of course, a foreshadowing of the temple. And, and so it is to say that sometimes, um, because what God is doing in that space, that space can have different implications for us. Nevertheless, Israel has to wrestle with this thing. They, they seem to... to, to um, to, to, to zero in on this particularizing aspect of God's presence. They, they, they want to stay in Egypt. When they get to the wilderness, they, they, they don't know what to do. But because of the preeminence of his presence, watch this. The lesson is this, that no matter where you are, it's his presence that makes the difference. The place doesn't make his presence. His presence makes the place. So you can be anywhere because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, and right there where you are, that place is transformed for your benefit. You can be in a, in a sunken place and, and God in the preeminence of his presence can lift you up. You can be in a prison cell and all of a sudden the cell becomes a sanctuary because God is with you. His presence makes a difference. And if the Lord sends us to a particular place, it doesn't mean that he can't bless us where we are because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. But we have to learn sometimes how to trust, trust him in different places because we get complacent in the place where we are. How quickly when we be tempted to think, as I said earlier, if ever I was in a different place, perhaps we ought to think if I was relating to God differently. Yeah, I got to leave you. But God can bless his people anywhere. 
This is the thing that they would learn in the wilderness. They didn't have water. And right there in the wilderness where there is no water, oasis comes. Because God's presence makes a difference. He can cause his people to flourish anywhere. He can give his people peace anywhere. He can give his people joy anywhere because his presence makes the difference. The preeminence of his presence, the same God who vowed to bless Abraham while he was chartering in the chambered cities of Chaldea is the same God that was able to bless him in the wilderness of Rand. The same God that blessed him in Haran was able to bless him on the plains of Dan. The same God that blessed Abraham in various locations is the same God that blessed Isaac and Jacob. His presence makes the difference. Joseph said, he made me fruitful, not in a prosperous land, but in the land of my affliction. Oh, thanks be to God. I love this, and I'll come close up with this thought. It's interesting, on Joseph's deathbed, the Bible says he made them vow. He made Israel vow, and this is what he says. God will surely visit you. And then he says, then take my bones down from here. But that, that's an interesting thing. He made them internalize the promise that God is going to show up. And oh, when he shows up, he has an opportunity and has a way of showing out in our lives. Thank God that he is an ever-present God because his presence makes a difference. I understand why David said, where should I go? Like, I, I, I need to be where you are, Lord. I need to be where you are. Your presence makes a difference because without your presence, I don't have peace. Without your presence, I don't have joy. Without your presence, I don't know what to do. Lord, be with me. And help me to see you, what you're doing. This preeminence is something that they will have to struggle with. But God is such a gracious God that even when they don't see him, and even when they don't recognize him, particularly in the wilderness, he's still working miracles on their behalf. I need you to know that sometimes we don't always recognize his presence, but that don't stop our gracious God from loving on us and showing himself and and writing little love letters because one of these days we'll wake up. One of these days we'll see it and we'll we'll look back over our life and say, Lord, I didn't see it back then, but when, when I was going Um, through this, you were right there with me. And I didn't see it back then, but I didn't know, Lord, but you were writing me a love letter over here. And I didn't see it over there, but Lord, you were working that thing out for me. And when I look at that and I look back over my life, I realize my God is with us. This will become the great eschatological hope when we get to Revelation, where God will move in to, uh, 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 in the neighborhood and we shall be his people and he shall be God with us. Thank God. Thank God for his presence. Amen and amen. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your, for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Lord, we want to be not like Pharaoh that resists and reject, but we want to have the type of uh, attitude that relies on your presence. 
Help us to see you. Help us to see you. You're always at work. You're not just present, but you're preeminent. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.